More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. There's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Joseph Valencia. And I'm Lisa Hildebrand. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students and postdocs each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are lucky to be joined by Olivia Williams, a third-year PhD student in the College of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences in the Geology program. Welcome, Olivia. Thanks for having me. Woohoo! Happy Sunday. (laughs) Yeah, we're so happy to have you. Um, So today we're going to talk about ice cores. Do you want to set the scene a little bit for uh, what the discussion today is going to be about? Yeah, totally. Uh, So ice cores are this really fantastic tool that we have to basically look back in time at how the Earth used to be. So ice cores fall under the umbrella of paleoclimatology, which is the study of how the climate has changed in the past. And uh, ice cores are great. Uh, They are drilled from the polar ice caps, typically. And uh, because each year new snow falls on top of the ice sheets and all the snow underneath gets squished down and squished down, you end up with these layers kind of like tree rings where the ice at the surface is the youngest and the ice at the bottom is the oldest. So what we do in the ice core lab here at OSU is we drill uh, cores going down into the ice sheets from typically Greenland and Antarctica, and we bring them back here. And because there are bubbles of old atmosphere trapped in that ice, we can extract those to learn about uh, the atmosphere going back through the past. Something I'm wondering about is just the scale of this. Uh, how, how big are these ice cores or the ice sheets that you're taking them from, rather? And kind of, what kind of timescales are we talking about also? Yeah, uh, the longest continuous ice core record that we currently have goes back 800,000 years. Wow. Um, we've found isolated pockets of ice that are about 4 million years old. And OSU is currently leading the U.S. effort to drill a 1.5 million year continuous ice core. So that is the goal that we're currently pursuing. But these, the longest ice cores can be up to like two miles long. Uh, But we drill them one meter at a time. So Mm -hmm. we put the drill down, drill down one meter, pull that ice out, 
put the drill down, drill another meter. So it's not like you have one continuous two mile long stick of ice. Gotcha. And for for people who potentially know about field efforts or research in general, um, obviously field work can be very expensive, I think, especially going to sort of the polar regions, you know, up to Greenland or the Antarctic. So um, tell us a little bit about where um, sort of ice cores uh, from different research expeditions are stored and how you don't necessarily have to, say, go to Greenland in order to get to, to access these ice cores. Yeah, totally. Uh, so ice coring is a great field to work in um, if you love doing field work, but it can also be a good field to work in if you are not so much of a field work person because we have this several decade long archive of cores that have already been drilled. Uh, and in the U.S., a lot of those, after they have been initially studied by the people who led the drilling efforts, they go to the National Ice Core Lab in Denver, where they are held in archive in this big freezer that is kind of like the uh, the warehouse at the end of Indiana Jones, where it's just the boxes and boxes <laughs> on shelves and shelves and shelves, but it's all boxes of ice. Uh, colder, massive maybe. freezer. Yeah, in this huge freezer, you have to get all bundled up to go inside. So, you know, if you want to do research um, in uh, a particular place that has already been drilled, uh, like my project, then instead of saying, well, now I got to apply for a grant to go to Antarctica, you instead fill out a form saying, hello, National Ice Core Lab, I would like 15 10 centimeter long pieces of X ice core. Please sail them, uh, mail them to me, please and thank you. <laughs> How do they mail ancient ice cores? Do you know? Uh, very carefully and with a lot of stress from the people who are waiting for them to arrive. <laughs> So you pack them up in a, a box. Often you have, uh, you know, that they'll be like in uh, in a box in a box. There's like multiple layers. And we have these, um, we just call them blue packs, but I think they're called like plastic ice or something like that. And they look kind of like a cold pack that you would use for an injury, but they freeze much colder and they freeze solid. Mm. So you pack those in with the ice and a lot of bubble wrap to keep the ice from getting broken in transit. And then you would usually, if it's within the U.S., you would overnight ship it. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes you run into issues where it's like, oh, it's 4 p.m. That ice was supposed to get here today. And the tracker says it's still in Portland. Mm. Does someone want to go get it <laughs> before it melts just sitting there? Right. And you're losing all this all this very valuable information. So you are one of uh, one of these individuals who is sort of taking advantage of this amazing resource, this National Ice Core Lab um, in Denver. So tell our listeners um, where your ice samples are, are coming from. Yes. So my project uh, specifically is looking at past melt layers um, in Greenland and from one core in Alaska that we're also comparing it to. So I uh, am looking at ice that ranges in age over about the last 120,000 years. And these cores were originally drilled from different areas in the Arctic. So I have some from the interior of Greenland where the ice sheet is really high elevation. And I have some that are drilled from glaciers near the coast and from northern and southern Greenland. And then we have one that is um, an alpine glacier, which means that mm. it is like a standalone glacier on a mountain. It's not part of a massive ice sheet mm. from uh, Mount Denali in Alaska as mm. well, just for some spatial comparison. Uh, but uh, almost all of those, almost all of the ice that I'm using for my project from those cores 
came to us through the National Ice Core Lab. You mentioned the time period 120,000 years ago. What is the significance of, of that date? About 120,000 years ago is what we call the last interglacial. So people might be familiar with the idea that we've had several ice ages or glacial periods going back through time. And uh, they follow kind of a regular cyclical pattern where the temperature rises and it falls and it rises and it falls. So the last interglacial uh, 120,000 years ago is when temperatures were at their peak before the most recent ice age. And that is a really useful point of comparison for paleoclimatology because it had temperatures similar to today or similar to pre-industrial temperatures. Mm. So, for example, if I'm looking at melt, which is what my project focuses on, and I want to say what was the frequency and intensity of melt that was happening during the last interglacial, and then how does that compare to today, and how does that vary like spatially across Greenland? So it... it Sort of looking at melt years or melt periods, what what would that represent? Sort of temperatures that are higher than average? Uh, a melt layer can only occur, uh, and this is talking about the, a melt layer refers to um, melt that happens at the surface of the ice sheet and then trickles down into the snow and refreezes. Mm. So this is not necessarily like the water that ran off of the ice sheet, but mm-hmm. this is what stayed there. And to have melting at the surface, you need to have temperatures that are above zero degrees Celsius, so mm. above freezing. And you can look at, you know, an individual melt layer and say, okay, well, on this day or in this month, it looks like we had temperatures that were high. But over a longer period to look at climate as like the long term average of weather, we can say, what is the frequency and intensity of these melting events? And then that can tell us how many positive degree days, days above freezing occurred in general and how that varied through time. Mm. In an interglacial period, is it sort of abnormal to have temperatures that are above zero or is there always like there's a standard number of days that are sort of, yeah, in a year or in an interglacial period that will be above zero, but you're looking for sort of abnormalities um, from that? It is can vary. I would say that just like even now uh, in a period of climate change, when we're uh, experiencing a specific trend, you still have the variation of individual weather events and Mm. years that vary from each other. Uh, But we do sort of have an expectation that um, there might be a certain uh, long-term average Mm. of positive degree days uh, that we would see and that we might be able to correlate that. So that will also tell us about summer temperatures because Mm. it's really, even in a warm period, you're not going to be seeing a bunch of positive degree days in Greenland in the winter. Mm. So Mm -hmm. it's really a way to say, okay, we know from other records, like what the mean annual temperature was like, but this is something that specifically tells us about summer days that were above freezing Let's see how that value changes with time. So once these melting events have occurred and they're sort of getting reintegrated into the ice cap, uh, I'm trying to understand how how that happens. Like what is the lag between when it melts and when it refreezes? Are we talking about years or is it just when the summer ends or? Yeah, it could be, you know, hours to Days after the melt, uh, I would say approximately. I guess it would depend on some factors. But the important thing to remember is that all of the ice on the ice sheet 
starts as snow. So the top layers are very porous and not very dense. And there's a lot of pore space where if you have melt, it can, uh, the water can sort of seep into it in the same way Mm -hmm. that you have like groundwater that seeps into the space between the dirt particles in the soil. Mm. Um, And then at some point it will hit a layer that is a little bit higher density and then the water can kind of pool there and that's usually when it refreezes. Right. And that's what you call a melt layer. Yeah. So that layer of frozen, uh, you know, solid frozen water, refrozen Mm -hmm. water is the melt layer. And you can usually identify them visually because unlike the rest of the glacial ice, it will be bubble free because the water has actually trickled in and filled in those gaps as opposed to normal glacial ice that is just squished down snow and still has those air bubbles in it. Mm. And is that sort of those methods of identifying melt layers versus non-melt layers also what you use to date sort of temporally an ice core? Like, how do you know, like, oh, the bottom of this ice core is 120,000 years ago versus 50,000 years ago versus 100? We have a lot of different methods that we usually use together to really lock in the dates on an ice core. And that's also one of the benefits of studying these ice cores that have been really well studied previously, Mm. because we have great chronologies, by which I mean we know exactly what age each depth corresponds to. Um, One of the classic ones that we use is that we know how argon concentrations in the atmosphere have varied through time. So if we have a new ice core, we can measure argon throughout the core and see what that plot looks like and how it changes through time. And then we can match that up with what we know the atmospheric record was. We can also do things like matching um, known volcanic eruptions. If you have a layer of volcanic ash at some point in the core, you could match that uh, chemically to um, ash elsewhere that you know comes from an eruption that occurred Mm -hmm. at a specific time. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, yeah, so a lot of it, sometimes we call it uh, wiggle matching. If you have a plot (laughs) of one value that has changed and you say, okay, well, I know how that looked through time. Let me wiggle match the plot from this Mm. core to the, you know, varying value Mm -hmm. uh, that we know already. So how are these various events like a volcanic eruption or the argon concentration monitored uh, in terms of looking for them in ice core? So when you uh, are conducting research on an ice core, um, you end up with a... So when you drill the core, you have a circular core. It's kind of a long cylinder that goes down. And then after that's drilled, we break up the cylinder into smaller pieces so that they can go to different labs for analysis. So, for example, the OSU Ice Core Lab focuses really heavily on greenhouse gases. Mm -hmm. So... We are one of the groups of people that might do the greenhouse gas analysis. And Mm. the way that we do that is that we take the ice, we put it under a vacuum in what we call an extraction line, which is a setup that we build specifically for extracting gases from the ice. So we put it under vacuum and then we melt it and we pull out that air that was trapped in the ice. And then we can take out any of the gases that we don't want to look at that might mess up our reading and then we pass it to the measurement instrument and then we can say okay at this time at this depth there was this much co2 or whatever or methane um 
if you are lo- looking at volcanic eruptions, you might send that to a lab that specializes in that, and they might have, I don't know as much about sure. that, but they would have their own <laughs> methods for you know, identifying those and dating them. Um, so it really is like a massively collaborative effort. And also because, as you mentioned before, it's so expensive mm-hmm. to drill these cores that there's no way that a single lab with like a single technical question to address could ever get enough money standalone to drill right? Um, at least like a polar ice core, maybe mm-hmm. an alpine ice core you could drill with one lab. Mm-hmm. But it, it almost always has to be this big multi-lab, multi-university effort with lots of questions that we think that we can address. And so the method that you just res- described of like these um, lines in which you sort of extract the gases, um, you're, you're using that method, but you're taking a somewhat more... <laughs> novel approach um, in order to sort of identify these um, melt layers or looking at the percentage of melt in an ice core because you're using noble gases. So tell us a little bit about that. That is exactly right. Yeah. So I'm kind of (laughs) (laughs) currently a little bit of the odd one out in the lab in terms of what I'm looking at uh, because noble gases are not greenhouse gases. They're these completely inert very low concentration gases that we have in the atmosphere. That would be like helium, krypton, argon, neon, xenon. Um, And those gases can be useful to identify melt because the heavier noble gases are more soluble in liquid water than the lighter noble gases. So if you look at the ratio, the heavy to light noble gas ratio going through the core, and you see a spike in those heavier noble gases that are more soluble, that could tell you that there was a layer of liquid water that refroze, Mm. which is useful because while you can usually visually identify uh, a melt layer, that gets really difficult in the deep ice as there's more and more pressure squishing it down, the layers get really thin, and eventually the pressure becomes so high that the gas bubbles dissolve into the ice and it becomes what we call clathrate ice. So there's Mm. no bubbles at all. So the thing that's like the telltale sign of a melt layer, AKA there being no bubbles. just kind of happens everywhere, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Mm. Exactly. So you can't see a lack of bubbles if there's just no bubbles in that whole section of ice. Right. So this noble gas method can be used as a supplementary method to that by saying, okay, if this is an area of the core that, you know, we think that there might be some uh, melt layers, but we're not sure, or we're seeing these features that we think are melt layers, but they could be something else, like a wind crust that used to be at the surface. Uh, So let's look at that. So, yeah, I use the same process. Um, I were in the process of building this noble gas extraction line. There Mm -hmm. are not a lot of labs that can do that kind of extraction, and we're additionally kind of iterating off of what's been done before. So we're kind of in a experimental design and building phase. Um, but when that is complete, we will have the uh, the little flasks at one end where we can put in the chunks of ice, vacuum out all the room air that we don't care about because that's mm-hmm. just from today. And <laughs> don't want to mix those. Don't want to mix that up. <laughs> Super important. Um yeah, there's, whoa, there's way too much CO2 in this ice. This is crazy. Uh, so we vacuum out all the room air, and then we start to melt 
um, the ice. And with noble gases, as you melt it, you also have to have a little stir bar in there mm. that is going crazy, stirring it up so the gases don't re-dissolve. Uh, and then we pull that out, take out things like CO2 that we don't need to measure for this type of analysis that might just kind of junk up the reading. We collect the gas at the other end, and then we take it to a mass spectrometer, which is a type of instrument that can just be used to look at the chemical composition of something. So then we can say, okay, how did the ratio of, for example, krypton versus argon change in this part of the core? Let's look for those spikes that might mean melt. Mm. Krypton being an example of one of those heavier noble gases? Exactly. Yeah. So we're using uh, krypton and xenon as our heavy noble gases and argon as our light noble gas. And then we're also looking at uh, nitrogen um, because that is just another useful one for comparison. You talked about uh, the wiggle matching earlier. It must be convenient for for your research because didn't you say the argon was kind of one of those timekeeping devices already? Yeah. So we have like the long term argon concentration records from these cores that I'm looking at. And those are kind of like very gradual um, small changes, I would say, whereas it's almost like funny, the scale of these melt layer signals, because it's like so we work in uh, per mil usually when we're talking about trace gases. So instead of percent, which is out of 100, it's per mil, which is out of 1,000. Mm. And you might be looking at like point something per mil change in certain ice core signals that you're looking at. But then when you get a melt layer, that, you know, uh, krypton-argon ratio might have a change of like several tens per mil. Mm. Mm. So even against that gradual changing background signal of the argon, you are still seeing these like huge spikes in the krypton and xenon ratio. Hmm. And as you mentioned, you're sort of a pioneer within your own lab um, because you're not using greenhouse gases, but these noble gases. Um, But you luckily had the chance to sort of, um, I guess, shadow the sort of pioneering lab of this method of using noble gases um, down at Scripps in La Jolla. Tell us a little bit about your experience there. Yes. So my uh, my advisor, even though he was one of the you know the co-creators of this project, he wanted to make sure that I had the opportunity to work in the lab that is one of the few labs in the U.S. that does this sort of noble gas analysis in ice cores. So the uh, Scripps Institution of Oceanography has an ice core lab headed by uh, Dr. Jeffrey Severinghouse. And this summer, I had the opportunity to work in that lab for five weeks, um, learning how they set up their noble gas extraction lines and kind of putting like the actual hands-on to the schematic that I've been working from. And I ran some practice ice in the line, and then I had the opportunity to run a few of my first samples while I was down there. So that was an incredibly valuable experience because I uh, I started my degree in fall of 2020 mm. during the early <laughs> pandemic. So I did not get a lot of lab time to start out with. And then additionally, we're building this new line mm. and no one else in the lab is doing exactly this kind of thing. So, you know, lots to learn from all the people I work with, but not exactly on this type of project. So this was like a huge leap ahead in my conceptualization of 
how my project was going to look and what the lab work was going to entail. And it was just such a cool experience to learn from people who spend a lot of time thinking about noble gases in ice cores. Mm. And um, I think you even um, in our pre-interview, you'd mentioned that you sort of while you were down there, you figured out why like some of your sort of initial testing hadn't worked well or you you were already sort of troubleshooting a lot of the things that maybe you know, working on it alone maybe would have cost you months as, you know, a grad student sort of getting <laughs> <Yeah>. your head <laughs> against the wall. <laughs> but luckily being able to sort of partner with this other lab sort of helped you along sort of maybe faster. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we were, I mean, I was only supposed to be down there for four weeks and I ended up having to stay five to really get any data because we were having these problems with you know, water vapor getting stuck in the line and we were not getting like quite full extraction of the gases. So even though the initial data that I got from that trip is not even like scientifically speaking, very good data, you know, there's (laughs) you look at it and you're like, oh, okay, that's not exactly what we think that should be looking like. That looks like it's a little wonky. But the process of going through that troubleshooting with people who are really experienced in this type of extraction was so valuable that even if I hadn't had time to get any of my own data, it still would have been a wonderful learning experience. It was good for the scientists more. Yeah. If the yeah. science was catching up right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I have that information now to apply as we're building the line here at OSU. And when I start running my extractions here, I will have some of that background troubleshooting knowledge already. Mm. And how is that line building going? Are you knee deep? Yes. <laughs> Ice core deep? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I uh, I came to OSU um, without a lot of like hands-on technical lab experience. And our lab has to build from scratch basically all of our setups because mm. it's not like there's prefabricated ice core extraction lines that exist and it can vary so much depending on what specifically you want to look at like we even have multiple lines for extracting methane Mm. multiple lines for extracting co2 to look at different aspects of that record Mm. um so you know to go in and look at the table and see this big pile of parts sometimes i feel like i you know i just i don't have the right experience for this i don't Mm -hmm. know what to do with this and it it can be stressful when that imposter syndrome sets in but Um, with the help of my advisor and with our really awesome lab manager as well, who is like this huge well of technical expertise. Uh, We're kind of getting into it and getting the parts that we need and getting it set up and saying, oh, this isn't okay. This can't be configured the way that we thought it could. Let's tweak this. And so, yeah, really, as you said, knee deep in the process. (laughs) I think there's a huge point in there that's like very inspirational and positive that is like, if you find sort of like lab-based research really interesting, but you've never had a chance to do it, that isn't necessarily something that has to stop you from being able Mm -hmm. to do it, like you said, or like having that, like, yeah, that technical experience doesn't need to stop you. Yeah, totally. And I think that, I mean, a lot of my science experience was like at the computer science, which I think people who aren't in science underestimate how much of it (laughs) is sitting in front of your laptop coding yeah. or writing or reading mm-hmm. papers or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I felt pretty okay about like the writing skills and things going into it. So I just try to remind myself that if I went into grad school already having all of the skills that I needed for my whole project, what would be the point in right. going to grad school? So there's stuff that I feel 
stronger on and there's stuff that I feel weaker on, but it'll all come up to snuff over the course of the project. Yeah. And you're the only person or lab in the world that knows or is even thinking to put together this instrument, right? So that, that's another sign that you're doing good work. Yeah, so we're not even, yeah, we're there are other people who do kind of similar things, but our setup, just even by nature of, you know, whatever parts we have available, is going to be, yeah, unique in the world. So it's <laughs> not like I can turn to anyone who's There's done no exactly this before. These. Yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> I sort of go down there and I look at it and I think, hmm, maybe it would be useful to try mounting the parts this way. I don't know. Let's go for it and see if it works. And if it doesn't, you know. So what? Yeah. And there's also something that both Joseph and I learned from you in the pre-interview. Oh, yes. That, yeah. <laughs> that I feel like we have to mention because... Possible new career path for yes, any of our listeners. Yeah, for anyone mm-hmm. who's listening. Um, tell us about it, Olivia. <laughs> yes. So I did not realize that there exists such a person as a scientific glassblower, which I guess when you think about it, it makes sense because all these labs around the world, they need specific shapes and types of glass traps and flasks and things for their different setups that because everyone is doing such different work, not all of these things can come standard. Um, But yeah, so I found out uh, early in my project that the, I guess there was someone on staff at OSU who used to do this. They had recently retired and my advisor said, well, maybe something that you could take initiative on is finding us another scientific glassblower to work with. And I sort of thought, yeah, okay, yeah. (laughs) I'll just go find us another scientific glassblower. Sure, no problem. But then I was speaking to the folks in the lab at Scripps, and they were saying, oh, yeah, we work with this guy in Connecticut who does our glassblowing. I was like, what's his email? You have to give me his email. (laughs) So clearly there's a vacant position as a scientific glassblower at OSU if there used to be one before. That that is what I have heard on the grapevine. Um, You know, if that is your passion, you may want to make some inquiries. Yeah. I had no idea. I always thought I in my mind, I was like, this is factory produced. Yeah, you would think it would be some laser <laughs> yeah. cutting or some, that's some precision. Some robot. <laughs> Not at all. So I'm wondering, how did you come to be interested in uh, this work and maybe just in geology generally? I would say that I have been interested in geology from a pretty young age, but I never ever really considered it as a career path until college. Um, and I should say that my my work does technically fall under the heading of geology, even though it's not rocks. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, geology can include a lot of things. And I, I would say that I'm like a geochemist. I geochemist. use mm-hmm. chemistry applications to, you know, investigate these ice cores. But to answer your question, um, my grandfather, uh, I grew up in the Seattle area, and my grandfather, for most of his career, was a science writer for the Seattle Times And one of his sort of pet interests was the geology and the history of the landscape of the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how did the Cascades and the Olympic Mountains come to be there? And what's with all these basalt formations in eastern Washington? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were these glacial outburst floods that carved these deep channels into eastern Washington And there was, you know, a big scientific debate for decades and decades about whether that was correct. And then it was proved that it was. And it was this big, you (laughs) know, people were so interested in this. Are those the, by any chance, the Missoula floods? Yeah, the Missoula floods, the Glacial Lake Missoula floods. I was just over uh, at Multnomah Falls last weekend. And like in the exhibit that they have there, they have super cool geology kind of 
exhibits and stuff. And I was fascinated to learn about how, how many of these layers that you can see in the waterfall were formed and stuff like that. It's really crazy that, so for anyone who's not familiar, there were, you know, sometimes when you have uh, an ice sheet that is in the process of retreating, such as in the later stages of an ice age, you end up with these big, um, you know, meltwater lakes that can get trapped behind a glacier dam, essentially. Mm. And if that ice breaks, you can unleash this huge flood of water mm. that can be like a mile deep, basically. Wow. Um, and so a lot of the landscape in eastern Washington and even in parts of Oregon was uh, really heavily altered by having these big outburst floods repeatedly occur. And that was something that was only really um, concretely uh, accepted as like the, the, the actual explanation for that landscape once we mm-hmm. had good aerial photography that showed these massive ripples in the landscape like you would see at the bottom of a river and they said okay those are water features that's that's crazy but so this is the landscape that my grandfather grew up in and Mm. he was very interested in these things and he wrote a lot about them and then he told me about it so for me geology was always like an exciting story about the place that I lived and about the world around me so I found it very interesting but I never really thought of doing it as a career And in fact, I went into college thinking that I also wanted to be a science writer Mm -hmm. and study journalism and then maybe get a minor in a scientific field. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there was this program that I got into that basically brought together communication students, education students and earth science students and said, let's teach all of you, uh, you know, all 10 of these undergrads about both the research side of things and the communication side of things. Mm -hmm. And then we should have you know, some scientists who are a little better at communicating and some communicators who have a little more background in science. Mm. But that was a program led by the BU, the Boston University Antarctic Research Lab. And as part of that program, I had the opportunity to learn a little bit about paleoclimatology and, you know, to look at these volcanic ash, to look at this moss and be like, wow, this moss is 15 million years old and I'm holding it in a little dish (laughs) and it can give us this window back into how the climate has changed in the past. And that was so fascinating for me. And I thought, man, I actually really want to do research on this. I think I'm going (laughs) to change my major. Yeah. So I changed and um, I worked in the BU Antarctic Lab for a little while. And then I did my senior thesis on nutrient cycling in marshes. Mm -hmm. But I knew that I really wanted to get back into polar research for grad school. So uh, that was how I ended up in the OSU Ice Core Lab. That that undergraduate program that you talked about, the one that sort of combines communication, education, and, and earth science, sounds so, sounds so fascinating. But you mentioned there was only 10 students in it. Was that just like limits... Was there only 10 students interested or that just like the limits of the class? Yeah. So it was uh, it was and I should also say up front that this program doesn't exist anymore because Mm. that professor left the university. Sorry. Sounds awesome. Very up our alley at inspiration Um, dissemination. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I'm a big science communication fan, Mm -hmm. um, but it was a program that was funded through this lab on a grant and they had enough money to you know, support like 10 students per year or so. Maybe it was like 15. Gotcha. So. I was in like my cohort of people who started at Boston University at the same time as me. So there were, I don't know, there's maybe like 
30 or 40 people total who went through the program. Wow. But I am very pro, like, you know, it doesn't have to be exactly like that program, mm -hmm. but let's get scientists to be more interested in and better at communication. And let's train some of these journalists to have a stronger foundation in scientific research. I think that really benefits everybody. Yeah. Speaking of which, the college you're in, CEOs, um, kind of does a really good job of SciComm, particularly the grad students. Tell us a little bit about what the grad students sometimes do on a Saturday in Corvallis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, the CEOs Association of Graduate Students um, is really good at uh, doing grad student-led outreach. And this year, I'm the outreach co-chair. So I have had the very fun experience of planning um, tabling at the Corvallis Farmer's Market, yeah. which is such a Corvallis institution. Course, you yeah. can go on a 100%. Saturday morning and see like 15 people that you know. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the you know faculty from all departments uh -huh. go there on, on Saturdays. So you, you run into a lot of people who are interested in science. So we go a couple times a year and we bring like coloring sheets and rock samples for kids. Sometimes we bring information about the college programs and about what the labs in CEOs are doing right now. And we just go and we chat with people as grad students who are studying earth science. And it ranges from kids who want to tell us about the rock facts that they learned in their <laughs> science class to sometimes people will come up and ask climate change questions, mm. which, you know, can be kind of fraught but is a really good conversation to have with people in the community so we get a pretty big span of interest when we do that i mean yeah climate change a really important conversation to like never let stop basically and always to keep having and to keep educating about i think that is such an awesome initiative yeah i i've never seen anything but the food at the farm <laughs> I'll, I'll have to look out for it i'm only ever eating the pupusas yeah. <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> I think that sometimes the pharmacy school also does like free blood pressure readings and things. Oh, I think that more okay. OSU departments should get out to the farmer's market, though, because it's it's a fun environment. And then you also just get to hang out at the farmer's market all morning, which is awesome. Yeah, I always, always notice the um, the like dairy lab and the, the meat and mm. cheese mm -hmm. lab, which I think is usually undergrads or grads selling like the meat and cheese products. But and the ice cream, I think, which is and a the ice big cream. hit. In the oh, summer. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, Olivia, we're slowly reaching the end of our interview, which is such a shame because uh, I've I've had such a great time. You've been an awesome guest. Um, you're really good at science communication. Yeah. So I think your grandfather, you know, handed off something um, through the genes or something. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. That really that means a lot. I appreciate that. Yeah, I thought those were awesome explanations. We didn't even have to like double check on any questions. <laughs> for sure. Thanks so much for coming. Um, so, but before we let you leave, we have three traditions on our show here on Inspiration Dissemination, which we are going to uh, go through now. The first is we ask you what your favorite thing is about your research and why. I think to get a little bit abstract with it, I feel like I get from my research what a lot of people get from like spirituality almost, which mm -hmm. is that when I have adjusted my brain in this way to think about these really long time scales of the earth and these how these changes happen over time and putting what we're seeing today into that context I feel like I know almost like what what my place in the world is which is like a very small one but part of this ecosystem that has existed for a long time in different forms and 
you know, I think in a time of a lot of uncertainty with climate mm-hmm. change and with, you know, economic issues and social issues, it can be very, um, I mean, it could be, I guess, depressing to think of like, you're just, you're just, I think I heard the the phrase geologically instantaneous to describe like things that happen on a, like a centuries time scale. And I was like, man, I'm geologically instantaneous, but it can also th- feel nice to think like the, you know, the earth is so old and it's so mm. much older than me and it's just going to keep on spinning. Mm. And I have a sense of what led to the point that I'm existing now and how it time is just going to keep on flowing afterwards and it's 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 it can be kind of nice and meditative yeah i think that's beautiful yeah that's really powerful and then um the next the next tradition we do is um ask you to give a piece of advice to anybody it might be somebody interested in grad school it might be a past version of yourself whoever you think of yeah i would say um Grad school and any other type of job or school that can really eat up a lot of your time, I would say that it's just important to go into it with a with a boundary of like, how much am I going to let this eat mm. up my life? And what are the things in my life that I really enjoy? My hobbies or, you know, the people that I want to keep in touch with that I'm not willing to cross that boundary that, you know, even if it's just something like every Saturday afternoon I have a game day with my friends or whatever mm-hmm. and I I refuse to work Saturdays cuz I'm not going to compromise that free time. I think just having having those boundaries going into it so that you're not having to sort of adjust on the fly can be really helpful. I think that's an excellent piece of advice. Some that I should heed myself sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could I could certainly do better at following that advice. <laughs> Um, and finally, we have reached our third tradition, which is that you get to pick your outro song. So tell our listeners uh, what it is and why you chose it. Yes, I have selected. I'm worried now that I'm going to get the title wrong. It's uh, Let's Get This Over With by Perfect. They Might Be Giants. Perfect. <laughs> um, a band that I really enjoy. And I've picked this song because I think that it kind of, I, I mean, it's a really fun song. Uh, but it also kind of has that theme of like the flow of time mm-hmm. and mortality, I mm-hmm. guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, you know, thinking on those long ice core and beyond time scales, uh, you know, as the song says, the, the drum beat never changes tempo. It just keeps on going. Awesome. Thank you so much, Olivia, for being a guest on our show. Um, and with that, here is Let's Get This Over With by They Might Be Giants. Never changes tempo It's steady like a rock And like a rock It crushes you as it gets louder The drum gets louder And louder And you know there is no parking on the dance floor And when you wake up you can feel your hair grow Crawl out of your cave And you can watch your shadow creep across the ground Until the day is done Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. 
This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends. <laughs>